0: H. G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. Book One The Coming of the Martians. Chapter Six The Heat Ray in the Chawtham Road. Thank you for joining us tonight. I'm your narrator and guide for the science fiction classic, The War of the Worlds, Chapter 6, The Heat Ray in the Choffam Road. This is part of Book 1 of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. As you recall in Chapter 5, hopefully I'm not spoiling this for anybody. If, if you haven't heard Chapter 5, you got to go back and listen to The Heat Ray, because guess what? There's a heat ray, and it sets the entire place on fire, wipes everything out, except for our narrator, who is somehow spared. And he is still on the run, trying to figure out where to go at this point. I wonder what we'll find out about the Martian's heat ray when it comes to Choffham Road. So, in the vein of being a podcast, in addition to being an ebook and not just reading works from antiquity, but we like to actually kind of take a look at why some of these works of fiction have actually stayed into the American lexicon over a hundred years after they were originally published. And Wells was known as the grandfather of science fiction, one of the grandfathers of science fiction. So we like to take a look at what Wells' life was like. And if you recall, we talked about his young life when he was sold into indentured servitude by his parents. And I think he worked as a draper and some other, other horrible jobs that were not a good fit for him. Later on, he went into his own apprenticeship in another field that wasn't rewarding for him whatsoever. And eventually he found his way into teaching. He was such a lettered man of science that he was retained by a school not once, but twice, and ended up teaching famous people like A.A. A. Milne, who went on to write Winnie the Pooh. Wells was kind of interesting, so his early life was actually relatively pretty typical of an English person's life at that time. If your parents couldn't afford to keep you, they basically sold you out. But what was Wells' personal life like after he started to find out who he was, after he went on from being a teacher to a writer? Well, in 1891, Wells actually married his cousin, Isabel Mary Wells. The couple agreed to separate in 1894, after just three years, when Wells had actually fallen in love with one of his students, Amy Catherine Robbins. He moved with her to Woking, Surrey in may eighteen ninety five, and that's actually one of the locations for Horsell Commons in War of the Worlds. You probably recall if you've been with us for the last several chapters. Wells's short period in Woking was perhaps um, his most creative and productive of his whole writing career because when he was there, he actually wrote War of the Worlds and The Time Machine. He completed the Island of Dr. Moreau and wrote and published. The Wonderful Visit, and The Wheels of Chance, and began writing two other early books, When the Sleeper Wakes, and Love and Mr. Lewisham. Wells and Jane moved to a larger house the next summer in Worcester Park. Do you say Worcester? Wecester? Worcester Park. Worcester Park. (laughs) It's near Kingston upon Thames. Um, they lived there for two years, and this lasted until Wells' poor health took them to Sandgate, near someplace called Falkenstone, where he constructed a large family home called Spade House in 1901. Wells had two sons with Jane, George Philip, known as Gip, and Frank Richard. Jane died on October 6, 1927 in Dunmo at the age of 55. Wells was actually quite the dog. He had a number of affairs with many women. In December 1909, he had a daughter, Anna Jane, with the writer Amber Reeves, whose parents, William and Maude Pember Reeves, he had met through the Fabian Society, which we've heard before. After Beatrice Webb voiced disapproval of Wells' sordid intrigue with Amber, he responded by lampooning Beatrice Webb and her husband Sidney Webb in his 1911 novel The New Machiavelli as Altiora and Oscar Bailey, a pair of short-sighted bourgeois manipulators. Between 1910 and 1913, novelist Elizabeth von Arnhem was also one of Wells' mistresses. In 1914, Wells had had a son, Anthony West, by the novelist and feminist Rebecca West, 26 years younger than him. In 1920 and 21, and intermittently into his death, Wells had a love affair with the American birth control activist Margaret Sanger. Between 1924 and 33, he partnered with the 22-year-younger year Dutch adventurer and writer, Odette Kuhn, with whom he lived in Loupe-Dieu, a house they built together in Grasse France. Grasse, France. Wells dedicated his longest book tour, The World of William Clissold in 1926. When visiting Maxim Gorky in Russia in 1920, Wells slept with Gorky's mistress, Mora Bugberg, then still Countess Beckendorf, and 27 years his junior. In 1933, when she left Gorky and emigrated to London, their relationship renewed, and she cared for him through his final illness. Wells asked her to marry him repeatedly, but Budberg strongly rejected his proposals. In Experiment and Autobiography, Wells wrote, I was never a great armorist, though I have loved several people very deeply. David Lodge's novel, A Man of Parts, in 2011, was said, A narrative based on factual sources, authors note, gives a convincing and general sympathetic account of Wells' relations with the women mentioned above and others. Director Simon Wells, born in 1961, is the author's great-grandson. He was a consultant on the future scenes in Back to the Future, Part 2. In the next chapter, we'll actually take a look at Wells the Artist. Wells the Man was quite the dog. Not sure I even like dedicating that much time to a guy who ran around with so many women, but you got to ask yourself, what did he have going on the ball for him? I mean, he was obviously, like I said, a learned man of letters. He had worked as a teacher, he works as a writer, he wrote number one hit that is still in publication over a hundred years later. That's an interesting thing about War of the Worlds, never been out of publication. It's obvious that many women found him quite attractive and obviously a good partner, at least for a short amount of time. Makes you wonder what went on behind closed doors, but we really don't ask that kind of thing. On Public Domain Playhouse, perhaps if somebody has a biography of Wells that they'd like to go into a little bit, I would love to hear more. So, let's get on with the story tonight. It's an incredibly brief chapter to follow up right after what happened with the heat ray, and I think we all remember what happened then. A figure rose up out of the ground and basically annihilated everything around. People ran for cover, including our narrator and guide. Tonight, we're actually going to take a look at what happens on the heat ray on Chaffham Road. It's an incredibly short chapter, but it's just kind of a follow-up and a segue to go on to something else. And that's actually one of the interesting points about War of the Worlds. It was written as a serial to begin with, so Wells only released it in short dribs and drabs to capture an audience's attention and to keep an audience enthralled over a period of How many weeks? I know how long it's taken me to read this and edit all the audio files to create something that I enjoy listening to. I hope you enjoy listening to it, too. Thank you again. This is Bart Benny, your narrator and guide for The War of the Worlds. Chapter 6 the heat ray in the chopham Road. It is still a matter of wonder how the Martians are still able to slay men so swiftly and so silently. Many think that in some way they are able to generate an intense heat in a chamber of practically absolute non-conductivity by means of a polished parabolic mirror of unknown composition. Much as the parabolic mirror of a lighthouse projects a beam of light, But no one has absolutely proved these details. However it is done, it is certain that a beam of heat is the essence of the matter. Heat, and invisible instead of visible light. Whatever is combustible flashes into flame at its touch. Lead runs like water, it softens iron, cracks and melts glass, and when it falls upon water, incontinently that explodes into steam. That night, nearly forty people lay under the starlight about the pit, charred and distorted beyond recognition, and all night long, the common from Horsel to Maybury was deserted and brightly ablaze. The news of the massacre probably reached Chaffham woking and Ottershaw about the same time. In Woking, the shops had closed when the tragedy happened, and a number of people, shop people and so forth, attracted by the stories they had heard, were walking over the Horsel Bridge and along the road between the hedges that runs out at last upon the common. You may imagine the young people brushed up after the labors of the day and making this novelty as they would make any novelty the excuse for walking together and enjoying a trivial flirtation. You may figure to yourself the hum of voices along the road in the gloaming. As yet, of course, few people in Woking even knew that the cylinder had opened Though no poor Henderson had sent a messenger on a bicycle to the post office with a special wire to an evening paper. As these folks came out by twos and threes upon the open, they found little knots of people talking excitedly and peering at the spinning mirror over the pits. And the newcomers were, no doubt, soon infected by the excitement of the occasion. By half past eight, when the deputation was destroyed, there may have been a crowd of 300 people or more at this place, besides those who had left the road to approach the Martians near. There were three policemen, too, one of whom was mounted doing their best under instruction from Stent to keep the people back and deter them from approaching the cylinder. There was some booing from the more thoughtless and excitable souls to whom a crowd is always an occasion for noise and harsh play. Stent and Ogilvy, anticipating some possibilities of a collision, had telegraphed from Horsall, the barracks as soon as the martians emerged for the help of a company of soldiers to protect these strange creatures from violence after that they returned to lead that ill-fated advance the description of their death as it was seen by the crowd tallies very closely with my own impressions the three puffs of green smoke the deep humming note and the flashes of flame. But that crowd of people had a far narrower escape than mine. Only the fact that a hummock of heathery sand intercepted the lower part of the heat ray saved them. Had the elevation of the parabolic mirror been a few yards higher, none could have lived to tell the tale. They saw the flashes and the men falling, and an invisible hand, as it were, lit the bushes as it hurried towards them through the twilight. Then, with a whistling note that rose above the droning of the pit, the beam swung close over their heads, lighting the tops of the beech trees that lined the road and splitting the bricks, smashing the windows, firing the window frames, and bringing down in the ink-rumbling ruin a portion of the gable of the house nearest the corner. In the sudden thud, hiss, and glare of the igniting trees, the panic-stricken crowd seems to have swayed hesitatingly for some moments. Sparks and burning twigs began to fall into the road, and single leaves like puffs of flame, hats and dresses caught fire. Then came a crying from the crowd, There were shrieks and shouts. It. Suddenly, a mounted policeman came galloping through the confusion with his hands clasped over his head, screaming. They're coming! A woman shrieked. And incontinently, Everyone was turning and pushing at those behind in order to clear their way to Woking again. They must have bolted as blindly as a flock of sheep, or the road grows narrow and black between the high banks of the crowd jammed. And a desperate struggle occurred. All that crowd did not escape, three persons at least, two women and a little boy, were crushed and trampled there and left to die. Amid the terror and the darkness. Ding, with a name like the heat ray in the Chaffum Road. Apparently the Martians are definitely going on a rampage at this point. I wonder what is going to happen in chapter 7. I know these chapters are super fast, they were serials, so I'm going to serialize this. and I hope you don't mind me posting like a thousand chapters, or maybe I'll just combine several into one. So next time, chapter 7 is How I Reached Home. So I guess we get to find out how our nameless narrator finds his way back home. I wonder if he'll see his wife again or who he'll meet along the way. I'm sure it'll be a gripping story. Please join us next time, again, for Chapter 7, How I Reached Home, in H.G. Wells' The War of the Worlds. Book 1, The Coming of the Martians. (laughs) I'm Bart Benny, your narrator and guide. I have a really good time reading to you. I hope you don't mind. Let me know what you think about the accents. I'm doing my best to try an English accent, and this man is rather dark. He does actually have a whole lot of horrible stuff to report, so I'm kind of making him a darker sounding voice as opposed to somebody who is, uh, I don't know, more professory. This guy is more of a survivor. So we'll see what happens next time. Thank you again for joining us on Public Domain Playhouse, your cross between an ebook, a podcast, Into teleplay. We'll see you in the next chapter.